How do you regulate the internet? It's a question that the federal government in Canada is in the process of trying to answer. But its approach is generating controversy, with several bills raising concerns around freedom of expression. Bill C-11, the Online Streaming Act, was recently rushed through the House of Commons in a remarkable manner that led one Conservative MP to call it an affront to democracy. My guest on the podcast today says a subsequent ruling from the CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television and Telecommunications Commission, is a freedom of expression wake-up call. You can't, as a regulator, decide on whatever approach you take without at least factoring in the expression issues and the, the protections that exist under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. He's also a host of the Law Bites podcast. Michael Geist is my guest today on Lean Out. Michael, welcome to Lean Out. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. I, I recently discovered your podcast, Law Bites, and I have become a fan. So very happy to have you on today. You've just published an online essay uh, titled The Freedom of Expression Wake-Up Call. This is about Bill C-11, the Online Streaming Act, uh, and the recent CRTC ruling on Radio Canada. We'll get to that. But first, let's just start with a brief explainer for listeners who may be getting up to speed. What is Bill C-11? Sure. So, so Bill C-11, also known as the Online Streaming Act, dates back now almost a couple of years, I suppose, with the government starting from the position that they wanted to bring the large online streaming companies, the Netflix and Disney's of the world, into the Canadian broadcast system. And I think, and their goal was really twofold. One was to ensure that there were financial contributions being made by those companies, and also to ensure that there was Canadian content that could be found on those services. Now, I think you can get into a reasonable debate as to whether or not those things are already happening. The reality is the streaming services are some of the biggest investors in film and television production in Canada right now. And, you know, because they don't have any sort of guarantees, if Canadians want to see Canadian content, it's on those services to ensure that they've got it on those services. And uh, those services do, and it's actually not very hard to find. All you have to do is type in Canada. But even if we park that to the side, what they did at least initially was exclude users or user content from the mm -hmm. scope of the legislation. And then along the way, they made a change. They kept the notion of users being outside the bill intact. So individual TikTokers or YouTubers won't have to show up to Gatineau to appear before the CRTC. But what then they also did was bring their content back into the legislation and said that anything that's audiovisual is a program subject to potential regulation by the CRTC. And thus, so too, the content of individual users. That sparked a lot of concern. The government that particular bill under the government died with the election last year. They brought it back. The heritage minister said that he fixed it, but it turned out he didn't really. And he created an exception to his new exception, so much so that TikTok has concluded that any video with music on it is subject to the legislation. And so we've seen the same kind of concerns uh, come right back again. Mm. And you, uh, so the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage had a hearing on this. You appeared on the first panel. What were the main points that you made about this bill? Yeah, so I, I've had a chance to appear now 
I guess several times before the Heritage Committee, and then most recently, that bill has passed the House and the Senate started what they called a pre-study, and in the fall they'll there'll be more extensive hearings on it. And I did appear before the Senate as well as part of what they called a pre-study, and, and I guess. I tried to focus on on at least a couple of things. Uh, the first was that I think it is indisputable for anyone that takes a fair reading of the legislation that user content is subject to the legislation. There's often been what I think has been a bit of a bait and switch where they say users are excluded. The mantra from the government has been platforms in, users out. It's very deceptive. The reality is that users' content is still within the legislation. And if you offload the regulation onto the platforms, it's still users' content in. It's just the platforms are being asked to regulate it. And I wanted to ensure that MPs and then senators understood that. I also raised concerns about how just how overbroad the legislation is. And so if you start from the proposition that any audiovisual content effectively anywhere in the world is a program subject to potential regulation by the Canadian regulator, by the CRTC. It's almost an unlimited scope of regulation by the CRTC. Now, the government and the CRTC would be expected to create some kind of limitations, but we don't know what those are. There are no mm. requirements built in. Uh, and so I essentially argued that the uncertainty associated with the legislation really runs counter to what we hope for when you get into a legislative process and that it, I think falls to the legislature to set some of those conditions to establish thresholds above which certain companies may be subject to the rules, but making it clear that anybody below those thresholds are, are out. Uh, and then the third point that, that I've tried to raise is that I think that the core policy objectives around this legislation, even the broadcasting act more generally remain uh, you, know, you know, well, what's the best way to put this, I think, is that they, they aren't fit for purpose at this point in time. So we often hear about the, the need to support Canadian content, and it's framed as uh, ensuring that we get Canadian stories produced. And yet, if you take a look at our current CanCon rules, there are actually three different policies in one. It's about mm. those proverbial Canadian stories. It's about uh, economic employment, about ensuring Canadians are employed. And there's even about intellectual property, Canadian ownership of IP. And the reality is it doesn't do any of those particularly well. And so it seemed to me that at a minimum, if you wanted to try to advance those policy objectives, you need to actually ensure that you had the policy objectives well established before you jumped in with legislation that sort of blows up part of the system, at least with respect to the internet. Mm. And as you say, this is with the Senate now. It was rushed through despite any hard deadline, despite it being 31 years since this legislation was updated. Uh, my understanding is MPs received the amendments hours before the vote, were expected to vote on hundreds of amendments without discussion or questions. Uh, Conservative MP Layla Goodridge calls this an affront to democracy. Your podcast on this was so interesting. I heard the audio of Hetty Fry repeatedly shutting down requests to have the amendments even read before the vote. Um, what is your analysis of this? Why, if you could speculate, do you think this was rushed through in such a manner? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I guess I'd start by saying it was crazy. Uh, I thought, for a democratic country where there was no deadline, as you just noted, the, the the worst that would happen is this legislation would carry over in the House until the fall. And if the votes are there, and it was pretty clear the votes were there, it would pass. And while there might have been a case to say that it was time to move on to 
what's known as clause by clause review. That's where MPs go over the various clauses that are proposed for amendment. There's an opportunity to discuss them, to ask questions of government officials, to propose sub amendments, I mean, and then to debate those amendments. The the approach that the government took, and Hedy Fry was really following the direction of the House of Commons, which essentially she was following what the government had ordered, mm. which was they put forward a motion that said, you know, we're going to give you one day for this, for clause by clause review, despite the fact that there were 150, nearly 200 amendments being proposed. And as you just noted, many of them only were made available to MPs hours before the actual hearing themselves. And they said, listen, we'll give you that one day. It was basically six hours. And if you haven't completed this by nine o'clock in the evening, you must move directly to simply voting. So no, just amendment number uh, and vote. No reading even of what the amendment is about, no opportunity for debate, questions, no anything other than just vote. And they did that again and again and again and again. It was craziness. I mean, we still to this day don't know you know, what was voted on because those amendments are not even public. And That's you know, astonishing. I, I, it is incredible to to see that, especially with no deadline at all. I mean, it doesn't make any, it frankly, just made no sense at all other than this notion of some sort of a political win for the minister to say that he got this through the house. But even that is pretty, you know, it's pretty chump change really, because of course there's still going to be the Senate review and the Senate said they're going to take months in the fall before they bring this to a vote. I do think, though, that in the aftermath of this being passed through the House, we now have, I think, some hints as to why there may have been this urgency. And I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories, but you know, if you take a look what we saw literally within a week or two of the House's vote, you find, one, that the government had promoted that this was going to benefit to the tune of a billion dollars of new money, which I think was Frankly, it was always illusory, but nevertheless, that was what the minister had stated. Mm. Within days of the, the bill passing in the House, department officials acknowledged that, well, you know, actually, that's a, an illustrative estimate. Uh, it's not any sort of firm numbers at all. The concern around regulating algorithms, which should come out of this legislation. Suddenly, you had the hearing before the Senate, and you had the chair of the CRTC saying, well, we won't order these companies to change their algorithms uh, specifically, but we will order them to have an outcome that could result in changing the algorithms, uh, largely a distinction without a difference. And then lastly, we have the CRTC decision uh, involving Radio Canada, where the CRTC and the government had insisted that freedom of expression was well protected, the CRTC is subject to the charter, and yet the CRTC sat on a decision involving speech regulation in which it ignored, and we can get into this further, when, mm -hmm. which it ignored the charter, didn't and can conduct any sort of charter analysis or freedom of expression analysis, and it sat on this decision for a year and a half since the case originally arose. It was clearly just sitting there waiting until both, I guess, the CRTC, the CBC's license renewal was completed and Bill C-11 was actually passed in the House. It, it feels like when you've got those number of things taking place that perhaps it isn't totally coincidental that the government was in a rush to pass this legislation through the House. Mm. Um, let's talk about this particular uh, CRTC ruling for Radio Canada, French division of CBC, I should note my former employer. Um, so you have called this case a wake up call for people who are not familiar. Can you just outline the broad strokes of what this case is and what it involves? Yeah, so it, it goes back, as I mentioned, a couple of years now where there was a, a radio segment involving 
uh, a book that uses the N-word in French, and they used the N-word um, in full, three times in French, once in English. Uh, and it's fairly clear that they, they gave a, a fair amount of thought to the fact that they had done that, and but, but nevertheless believed that it was true to the book title and the use of the word in that context. There was a complaint filed with the CBC Ombudsman, who found essentially the CBC Radio Canada had acted appropriately. Uh, under the current system, there was the ability to appeal that to the CRTC. And it it sat with the CRTC, as I say, for roughly a year and a half. CRTC's now put out a decision where the majority, and there are two dissents that I can come to in a moment, the majority has come to the conclusion that Radio Canada did not act appropriately, in, or at least inconsist, consistently with the objectives of the Broadcasting Act. Um, and they've ordered an apology. They would like the uh, Radio Canada to come up with a strategy within within a month or two about how they will handle these cases in the future. And I believe the segment is actually still online and they would like to, to know what they plan to do about it. Mm. There are, are two dissenting opinions, both of which make the same case. Uh, and they both say, listen, you've conducted this analysis and you have not even invoked any sort of charter analysis, any sort of freedom of expression analysis, which is surely a requirement when what you are engaging in is speech regulation. And when I argue that in this post that you referenced that it's a wake-up call, you know, I arrive at I arrive at that because I think this is a genuinely tough issue. You know, it's it's you know, I'm a white Jewish male. There are things that might be said that I would take great offense to and would have a, have real trouble with. Um, I'm not an expert in this, and so I don't know what the best approach is. But what I do know is that you can't, as a regulator, decide on whatever approach you take without at least factoring in the expression issues and the, the protections that exist under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the, the fact that the CRTC was willing to do that, you know, I think really is should be a wake-up call for a CRTC that under Bill C-11 is going to be granted far greater power. We're entrusting it not just with this kind of case, but in fact, to extend its powers to mm. internet speech more broadly. And the response that we've got from people like Minister Pablo Rodriguez and some liberal MPs and other supporters of the bill has consistently been, first they say, you know, user content is out of the bill. That's just not true. They're they're gaslighting when they say that. But then they say, even if you accept that there may be some that is captured by this, don't worry. The CRTC is subject to charter rights and freedom of expression. And then along comes the CRTC with the case, and they don't even consider those issues. And so are we really to trust a regulator like the CRTC when it, it when it's now proven that it may involve itself in content regulation cases and not factor in those charter rights. Mm, it's such an important question. And this is all taking place in a broader context. Um, let's pull back a bit and talk about the climate right now around internet regulation in this country, which you have covered extensively. Uh, bill C-11, one of several bills that have raised concerns. There's also Bill uh, C-18, the Online News Act, and then this sort of vague online harms bill that has been in development. You actually filed an access to information request on the government's online harms consultation. Uh, walk us through what the key takeaways are and what you found there. Sure. So, the online harms piece, and you're right, This there's a, a three-part element in a sense to what the government has in mind. We just talked about one on the broadcast side. We can come to news if you like. But uh, on the online harms piece, which the government is in the process of rebranding as online safety, uh, you had the then heritage minister, Stephen Guibault, really 
want to march full speed ahead with new rules that uh, would involve trying to address what what he he saw as harms online. Um, my understanding is that the that within the government there was an attempt to sort of push back some of the ambitions. He at at different points had talked about harmful content and the like, and and over time the government sort of narrowed it to specifically what would be seen as illegal content, um, hate hateful content, child endangerment, other sorts of child pornography content of that nature. Um, but uh, the you know when Gibo I think struggled with the prior bill C11 and C10 to effectively communicate what the government had in mind. Government made a decision to hold back on introducing the legislation and instead last summer almost a year ago now, held a consultation on the issue. It actually took place in the middle of the election, so people can be forgiven if they missed it, because most people might have been either uh, you know, involved in summer things or thinking about perhaps the election campaign, certainly not about a government consultation that closed four days after they went to vote. Mm. Um, so it was, the timing itself was odd. Even odder was the government's decision after the consultation concluded that they said they would not release the actual submissions. And so it seems to me that if you hold a public consultation, it's reasonable to say that there should be an expectation from anyone that participates that uh, those submissions will be made public. You're trying to influence the government. The public should have the right to see what it is that you're saying. And that I say that from people from across the spectrum, whether you were in favor of what the government had in mind or you were against it, surely there should be some visibility on that. The government instead created a summary. So they said, here's a what we heard report um, in which they sought to summarize and remove attribution from specific comments that they received. As you mentioned, I filed an access to information request seeking the actual submissions themselves. And lo and behold, once I got a hold of that, over a thousand pages with lots of different submissions, what, what I found was that while some of the submissions had already been made available, people made them available on a voluntary basis, and I actually posted them on my blog. There were many others that were not. You had, for example, Twitter yes. likening some of the provisions in there to the approaches that are seen in author authoritarian regimes, such as China and, and the like. Um, you had many groups who would have likely have been supportive of this legislation, um, the type of groups that are really concerned with online hate or um, you know other, other issues where they feel vulnerable online. And yet they too were really concerned with what the government had in mind. So there weren't the checks and balances that we would expect. There wasn't the due process. There were, for example, requirements for mandated takedowns within 24 hours. Well, you can't possibly have any sort of due process or review in a 24-hour period. There was the prospect of website blocking, where you'd conscript Canada's internet providers to block content uh, where, the, where those platforms fail to abide by what the government wanted to see happen. You had all sorts of um, oversight mechanisms or new bureaucracy associated with much of this that raised a lot of concerns. And so the government has said that they would go back to the drawing board at least a little bit. They struck a uh, expert panel that spent the spring reviewing some of these issues. It's now concluded its work and, and we can expect some kind of also, I guess, what we heard report mm. uh, sometime fairly soon. And we'll see, uh, the guess is that we'll see some sort of legislation later this year. Uh, but the the starting point certainly, I think, was, was, was really dangerous in many respects. It really was offside, I think, the expectations most would have with respect to um, kind of safeguards and protections uh, for due process and the like. None of this to say that there isn't a role for legislation in dealing with 
uh, online harms. My own view is that there is a role. And uh, at a minimum, we need to ensure better accountability from the platforms, liability for the platforms where they fail to live up to that, real transparency about what the platforms are doing when it comes to things like content moderation or takedowns or, or the range of different activities that they might might engage in. Um, but that's a far cry from what at least initially the government seemed to have in mind. Hmm. And let's spend a few moments, uh, as you say, on the Online News Act. Uh, you had such an interesting interview recently with Sue Gardner, former CBCer, uh, Silicon Valley, now at McGill's School of Public Policy. W what are you thinking with this Online News Act? What, what are the major issues with this act that, that you think need reviewing? Yeah, well, we'll see how this plays out in the fall. It seems to me this is this really, in some ways, will should be the next C eleven in terms of people paying real attention. Where I think there are mm. there is real reason for concern, and I guess I would start here by saying, listen, I don't think anybody has any doubt that there are challenges that the news sector is facing right now. I think we've seen a lot of really interesting innovation, and of course, Substacks and uh, podcasts are part of that. Uh, mm -hmm. When we see some of that really. You know, I think interesting innovation, new kinds of reporting and new kinds of ways for people to get their voices out. But some of it's no, there's no doubt that some of the legacy companies have struggled. Now, it seems to me the government has come up with a number of different uh, policies that have been designed to support the sector, uh, most notably with the labor uh, tax credits that they've got and the like, which have been, by all accounts, uh, pretty substantial for many or news organizations. But you know, over the last year or two, the the view has emerged that they would like payments from companies like Google and Facebook as well. And while I don't think anybody is particularly fussed about new payments from Google and Facebook, there are, in my view anyway, a lot of concerns that arise from this legislation. And just, I, I've got plenty, but just to name name a couple off the, the top, one, I think it, it ironically increases our dependence on these companies, right? You know, at a time when we are concerned about just how powerful Google and Facebook, some of the other internet platforms are. The idea that suddenly now we would vest in them effectively, whatever it is, 20%, 25%, or some number of costs for, for journalists within news organizations, just on an ongoing basis, that's where the money's going to come from without necessarily any sort of accountability about how that even might take place, strikes me as really problematic. I, I think we need to be finding ways that make us, us less dependent on these companies, not more. Uh, but beyond that, my biggest concern actually is how the government goes about defining why these companies should pay anything. Now, it seems to me that if Google or Facebook were, let's say, copying full, reproducing full copies of articles, running ads against it, you can make a case that it doesn't seem very fair that that they ought to be licensing that content and paying for it. But they already do that. And what the government has in mind is payment for something far beyond just that. They say that payment should come merely for facilitating access to news. Well, what's facilitating access to news? The government now acknowledges its links. So it's not copying. It's simply directing someone um, on a social media service saying, here's a good article. Go take a look at it. That link is itself seen as facilitating access to news. Uh, search indexes are seen as facilitating access to news. So it seems to me that a, that a reasonable read of the legislation is that if somebody runs a search for, I don't know, newspapers in Edmonton and 
they get out of the Google search a list of those news news organizations or newspapers. That that list itself is a compensable activity. Simply identifying that this is who exists, sending them to the front page, that alone is seen as facilitating access to news, and it's compensable. And all of that strikes me as I mean, just that just can't be. I mean, those things are that that's there is no value there. I think there's a good debate that actually the links are of value to the party being linked to the the platforms are actually benefiting the news organizations by sending traffic their way. But even if we set that aside, this very expansive view of what where there ought to be compensation, I think is really troubling. I, I don't think it's based on a real rational policy it's it feels just more like a shakedown but i also worry that if we start by saying okay the you know the news organization should get this what makes them so special you know what what is to stop someone down the road from saying well you're linking to my content or you've included my content in your search index i think you ought to pay for that too and so suddenly we find ourselves potentially in a world where there are mandated payments for basically trying to facilitate the free flow of information, for making it easier for people to access information online or to ensure that their voices are heard. That strikes me as, as enormously problematic, going well beyond the, the particular problem that's been identified in terms of trying to find some support for a sector that has struggled. And I mean, what does it mean to have a state involved on such a granular level like that on a day-to-day -day basis? I mean, how do you stop overreach? I mean, it just seems like quite a major issue. You don't stop overreach. Uh, in fact, I would argue the overreach is already there. Um, we already, we've seen, you know, I find it interesting at times there's been efforts to talk about the lobbying that's taken place from companies like Google or Facebook around these issues um, without much talk about full page blank pages or advertorials that have been run by the post medias and Toronto stars of the world uh, in an effort to lobby around this, the efforts that they've had to, to basically devote editorial pages and opinion pages to support for the legislation and a deep reluctance to criticize the government on it. Indeed, we know that there have been op-eds that have been spiked by some of these companies because they've been critical of the government itself. So no doubt, one of the implications of this, when you bring the government, so make it so directly involved in the news sector this way, is that it is going to have this kind of impact. And so uh, I guess my view at this stage would be that if you are convinced that these companies need to be paying something beyond paying taxes, I mean, to me, the obvious solution is to make sure they pay their fair share of taxes and you can allocate that revenue in whatever way you see fit. Even if you want to say, I want something more than just that, it seems to me you can establish some sort of fund mechanism where rather than having this direct correlation to payments directly through negotiated deals with the large players and invoking again the CRTC to sort through all of this, to set standards, to set codes of conduct, to decide who participates and who doesn't, the CRTC has its fingerprints all over this. Surely a better system would be, okay, fine third-party funding mechanism to actually fund the journalism that that we believe ought to be funded and may struggle to be funded and take this away from this kind of direct there's value so there's got to be payment even though we know that the value definition is pretty bogus and then get the crtc involved to make a plethora of decisions uh, which really does inject the government and its regulator very much directly into the news sector mm. Wow, it's so so much to think about here. I just to close, Michael, how concerned are you about the state of freedom of expression in this country right now? Well, 
Yeah, that's that's a question I get asked a lot, and and I my view would be that I am certainly con- I'm concerned on a number of fronts. I mean, I think there's reason for concern about the platforms facing pressure or of their own volition have creating some limitations on freedom of expression. I think there are concerns about the government using some of this legislation uh, with to have create limitations on freedom of expression as well. Not so much the the right to to speak. You know, I, I don't see C11 as creating limitations on my right to be on my right to say whatever I want to say. I do think, however, they have real implications for people's ability to be heard. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I guess it's an important part of expression as well. You know, if you create legislation as C11 does, that allows for the, uh, the promotion or demotion of certain kinds of content, that really does go to the heart of part of what expression is about, which is the ability to find that audience and ensure that your expression is heard. And while much of the discussion around C11 has focused on this notion of discoverability, this idea that we ought to conscript the platforms to ensure that Canadian content is more discoverable, if you take a close look at the legislation, discoverability is actually an example of the power the CRTC has. It is not the sole power that it has. Its power involves the presentation of programs, and we know that programs are is all this audiovisual content. So if you're saying that the CRTC can establish conditions around how this content gets presented, then you are getting into questions around potentially demoting certain kinds of content, uh, requiring warning labels or other kinds of indicia around content that the regulator might see as problematic or uh, to use its language as counter to the objectives of the Broadcasting Act. And so that, I think, when you look at that potential eventuality, that I think surely does have raised real concerns for freedom of expression in Canada. Well, as I say, lots to think about here. Uh, Thank you so much for your podcast, which does such a great job of making these complex things quite accessible. And, And thank you for coming on today. Oh, that was fun. Thanks so much for having me. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>